Chapter One of Indiana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. Indiana by George Sand. Translated by George Burnham Ives. Chapter One. On a certain cool, rainy evening in autumn, in a small chateau in Brie, three pensive individuals were gravely occupied in watching the woodburn on the hearth, and the hands of the clock moved slowly round the dial. Two of these silent guests seemed to give way unreservedly to the vague ennui that weighed upon them, but the third gave signs of open rebellion. He fidgeted about in his seat, stifled half-audibly divers melancholy yawns, and tapped the snapping sticks with tongs, with a manifest intention of resisting the common enemy. This person, who was much older than the other two, was the master of the house, Colonel Del Mar, an old warrior on half-pay, once a very handsome man, now over-corpulent with a bald head, grey moustache, and awe-inspiring eye. An excellent master before whom everybody trembled, wife, servants, horses, and dogs. At last he left his chair, evidently vexed because he did not know how to break the silence, and began to walk heavily up and down the whole length of the salon, without laying aside for an instant the rigidity which characterizes all the movements of an ex-soldier, resting his weight on his loins, and turning the whole body at once, with the unfailing self-satisfaction peculiar to the man of show and the model officer. But the glorious days had passed when Lieutenant Delmar inhaled triumph with the air of the camps. The retired officer, forgotten now by an ungrateful country, was condemned to undergo all the consequences of marriage. He was the husband of a young and pretty wife, the proprietor of a commodious manor with its appurtenances, and, furthermore, a manufacturer who had been fortunate in his undertakings. In consequence whereof, the colonel was ill-humoured, especially on the evening in question, for it was very damp, and the colonel had rheumatism. He paced gravely up and down his old salon, furnished in the style of Louis the Fifteenth, halting sometimes before a door surmounted by nude cupids in fresco, who led in chains of flowers, well-bred fawns, and good-natured wild boars, sometimes before a panel overladen with paltry over-elaborated sculpture, whose torturous vagaries and endless intertwining the eye would have wearied itself to no purpose in attempting to follow but these vague and fleeting distractions did not prevent the colonel whenever he turned about from casting a keen and searching glance at the two companions of his silent vigil resting upon them alternately that watchful eye which for three years past had been standing guard over a fragile and priceless treasure his wife for his wife was nineteen years of age and if you had seen her buried under the mantle of that huge fireplace of white marble inlaid with burnished copper if you had seen her slender pale depressed with her elbow resting on her knee a mere child in that ancient household beside that old husband like a flower of yesterday that had bloomed in a gothic vase you would have pitied colonel delmar's wife and the colonel even more perhaps than his wife the third occupant of this lonely house 
was also sitting under the same mantel at the end of the burning log he was a man in all the strength and all the bloom of youth whose glowing cheeks abundant golden hair and full whiskers presented a striking contrast to the grisly hair weather-beaten complexion and harsh countenance of the master of the house but the least artistic of men would none the less have preferred monsieur delmar's harsh and stern expression to the younger man's regular but insipid features the bloated face carved in relief on the sheet of iron that formed the back of the fireplace with its eye fixed constantly on the burning logs was less monotonous perhaps than the pink and white fair-haired character in this narrative absorbed in like contemplation however his strong and supple figure the clean-cut outline of his brown eyebrows the polished whiteness of his forehead the tranquil expression of his limpid eyes the beauty of his hands and even the rigorously correct elegance of his hunting costume would have caused him to be considered a very comely cavalier in the eyes of any woman who had conceived a passion for the so-called philosophic tastes of another century but perhaps monsieur delmar's young and timid wife had never as yet examined a man with her eyes perhaps there was an entire absence of sympathy between that pale and unhappy woman and that sound sleeper and hearty eater certain it is that the conjugal argus wearied his hawk-like eye without detecting a glance a breath a palpitation between these two very dissimilar beings thereupon being assured that he had not the slightest pretext for jealousy to occupy his mind he relapsed into a state of depression more profound than before and abruptly plunged his hands into his pockets the only cheerful and attractive face in the group was that of a beautiful hunting dog of the large breed of pointers whose head was resting on the knees of the younger man she was remarkable by reason of her long body her powerful hairy legs her muzzle slender as a fox's and her intelligent face covered with disheveled hair through which two great tawny eyes shone like topazes those dogs eyes so fierce and threatening during the chase had at that moment an indefinable expression of affectionate melancholy and when her master the object of that instinctive love sometimes so superior to the deliberate affection of man ran his fingers through the beautiful creature's silky silver locks her eyes sparkled with pleasure while her long tail swept the hearth in regular cadence and scattered the ashes over the inlaid floor it was a fitting subject for rembrandt's brush that interior dimly lighted by the fire on the hearth at intervals fugitive white gleams lighted up the room and the faces then changing to the red tint of the embers gradually died away the gloom of the salon varying as the fitful gleams grew more or less dull each time that monsieur delmar passed in front of the fire he suddenly appeared like a ghost then vanished in the mysterious depths of the salon strips of gilding stood forth in the light now and then on the oval frames adorned with wreaths and medallions and fillets of wood on furniture inlaid with ebony and copper and even on the jagged cornices of the wainscoting but when a brand went out resigning its brilliancy to some other blazing point the objects which had been in the light a moment before withdrew into the shadow and other projections stood forth from the obscurity 
Thus one could have grasped in due time all the details of the picture, from the console supported by three huge gilded tritons to the frescoed ceiling, representing a sky studded with stars and clouds, and to the heavy hangings of crimson damask, with long tassels which shimmered like satin, their ample folds seeming to sway back and forth as they reflected the flickering light. One would have said from the immobility of the two figures in bold relief before the fire, that they feared to disturb the immobility of the scene, that they had been turned to stone where they sat, like the heroes of a fairy tale, and that the slightest word or movement would bring the walls of an imaginary city crumbling about their ears. And the dark-browed master, who alone broke the silence and the shadow with his regular tread, seemed a magician that held them under a spell. At last the dog, having obtained a smile from her master, yielded to the magnetic power which the eye of man exerts over that of the lower animals. She uttered a low whine of timid affection, and placed her forepaws on her beloved shoulders with inimitable ease and grace of movement. Down, Ophelia, down! And the young man reproved the docile creature sternly in English, whereupon she crawled toward Madame Delmar, shamefaced and repentant, as if to implore her protection. But Madame Delmar did not emerge from her reverie, and allowed Ophelia's head to rest on her two white hands, as they lay clasped on her knee, without bestowing a caress upon her. "'Has that dog taken up her quarters in the salon for good?' said the colonel, secretly well pleased to find a pretext for an outburst of ill-humour to pass the time. "'Be off to your kennel, Ophelia. Come out with you, you stupid beast.' If any one had been watching Madame Delmar closely, he could have divined in that trivial and commonplace incident of her private life the painful secret of her whole existence. An imperceptible shudder ran over her body, and her hands, in which she unconsciously held the favorite animal's head, closed nervously around her rough hairy neck, as if to detain her and protect her. Whereupon Monsieur Delmar, drawing his hunting crop, from the pocket of his jacket, walked with a threatening air toward poor Ophelia, who crouched at his feet, closing her eyes, and whining with grief and fear in anticipation. Madame Delmar became even paler than usual, her bosom heaved convulsively, and turning her great blue eyes upon her husband, with an indescribable expression of terror, she said, "'In pity's name, monsieur, do not kill her!' These few words gave the colonel a shock. A feeling of chagrin took the place of his angry impulse. "'That, madame, is a reproof which I understand very well,' he said, "'and which you have never spared me since the day I killed your spaniel in a moment of passion while hunting. He was a great loss, was he not? A dog that was forever forcing the hunting and rushing after the game? Whose patience would he not have exhausted? Indeed,' You were not nearly so fond of him until he was dead. Before that you paid little attention to him, but now that he gives you a pretext for blaming me— Have I ever reproached you, said Madame Delmar, in the gentle tone which we adopt from a generous impulse with those we love, and from self-esteem with those whom we do not love? I did not say you had, rejoined the colonel, in a half-paternal, half-conjugal tone. But the tears of some women contained bitterer reproaches than the fiercest imprecations of others. Marbleu, madame, you know perfectly well that I hate to see people weeping about me. 
I do not think that you ever see me weep. Even so, don't I constantly see you with red eyes? On my word, that's even worse. During this conjugal colloquy, the young man had risen and put Ophelia out of the room with the greatest tranquillity. Then he returned to his seat opposite Madame Delmar, after lighting a candle and placing it on the chimney-piece. This act, dictated purely by chance, exerted a sudden influence upon Monsieur Delmar's frame of mind. As soon as the light of the candle, which was more uniform and steadier than that of the fire, fell upon his wife, he observed the symptoms of suffering and general prostration which were manifest that evening in her whole person, in her weary attitude, in the long brown hair falling over her emaciated cheeks, and in the purple rings beneath her dull, inflamed eyes. He took several turns up and down the room, then returned to his wife, and suddenly changing his tone. "'How do you feel today, Indiana?' he said, with the stupidity of a man whose heart and temperament are rarely in accord. "'About as usual, thank you,' she replied, with no sign of surprise or displeasure. "'As usual is no answer at all.' or rather it's a woman's answer, a Norman answer that means neither yes nor no, neither well nor ill. Very good. I am neither well nor ill. I say you lie, he retorted with renewed roughness. I know that you are not well. You have told Sir Ralph here that you are not. Tell me, isn't that the truth? Did she not tell you so, Monsieur Ralph? She did, replied the phlegmatic individual addressed paying no heed to the reproachful glance which Indiana bestowed upon him. At that moment a fourth person entered the room. It was the factotum of the household, formerly a sergeant in Monsieur Delmar's regiment. He explained briefly to Monsieur Delmar that he had his reasons for believing that charcoal thieves had been in the park the last few nights, at the same hour, and that he had come to ask for a gun to take with him in making his nightly round before locking the gates. Monsieur Delmar, scenting powder in the adventure, at once took down his fowling-piece, gave Le Lièvre another, and started to leave the room. "'What?' said Madame Delmar in dismay. "'You would kill a poor peasant on account of a few bags of charcoal?' "'I will shoot down like a dog,' reported Delmar, irritated by this remonstrance, "'any man whom I find prowling around my premises at night. "'If you knew the law, madame,' "'You would know that it authorizes me to do it.' "'It is a horrible law,' said Indiana warmly, but she quickly repressed this impulse, and added in a lower tone, "'But your rheumatism! You forget that it rains, and that you will suffer for it to-morrow if you go out to-night.' "'You are terribly afraid that you will have to nurse your old husband,' replied Delmarie, impatiently opening the door. And he left the room, still muttering about his age." and his wife. End of chapter 1